politics and religion should be separated. All decisions you make, your faith should influence your decision. It should, but I don't think that God has much to do with the election. It has more to do with your faith and who's going to do the best job. I don't think political views have a place in the church. I don't think that anyone's faith should affect the way they vote. It's simply a political act. Well, you should follow your heart, whatever, you know, you believe in. I think that uh, basic morals, uh, that's the way we were brought up. And uh, I think it should be a consideration in our uh, voting. For my faith is always on Christ, you know, so it's not on people, but voting. You should vote on whoever you feel like that's going to take care of things in the community. And as far as I'm concerned, politics have nothing to do inside the church. This country is built on the separation of church and state. Well, I think that it's best for us to pick a candidate who has good moral standings. Unless uh, your, your issues that you're voting on are really... Uh something like abortion, something like that, then yeah, that's a faith-related issue, but personally, I don't believe that you should vote based on those things. I think you vote for a candidate best based on his policies and his convictions, and faith is a private thing. Well, she's a right-wing religious person, you know, that God bless him, he's entitled to his beliefs, but he should be ruling by the Constitution, not by the laws of Jesus. Sorry, that's how I feel. <laughs> Well, the, the Sunday that uh, I told you about long ago, the Sunday that uh, my wife has been dreading, <laughs> she was uh, pretty certain I wouldn't have a job by the time we're done here today. I was going to come with a catcher's mask on just in case anybody really got upset, but I figured you're all big boys and girls, and what I'm going to do is bring the word to you. Last week, we started a short series called this. It's called Living in Shades of Gray. And basically what we're talking about is there are few things in life that are black and white. There are some things that are black and white. Usually, though, the Word is very clear about those things. You can go right to the Word and say, here it is, here it is, here it is. But quite honestly, there's not a lot of those things. Most of the stuff that we have to deal with every day are shades of gray because the Bible really doesn't give us specific black or white about most of what we do. You know this because you'll find lots of different opinions about all of it. And you try to go to the Word of God and say, okay, what does the Word say about whether you can do this or that? And you find out that it doesn't. It does say some things that are black and white, but a lot of things are shades of gray. And sometimes we get pretty heated about one another's opinions in those shades of gray. And this was true in the very early church. We looked at it last week. It'll be a little bit of a review. Remember the early church in Romans chapter 14. Paul talked about two shades of gray that were dividing the church. The church of Rome was a great church. It wasn't like the church of Corinth that was all falling apart. The church of Rome was a great church, but they still had issues. Even a great church has issues. And they were divided and they were arguing over two main things. You remember what they were? What were the two things the church was arguing about? Before Carson speaks, food issues, okay, was one. Sabbath was the other one. Okay, can, can you eat meat or not eat meat? There were some people who said, you cannot eat meat. And there were people who said, yes, you have to eat meat. And they were at each other's. You know, if you're a real Christian, you won't eat meat. If you're a true follower, you will eat meat. Then the other one was, when can you worship? What is a sacred day? And people were saying, if you really love God, you'll observe his Sabbath. And other people said, if you really love God, you'd know the freedom that there is no particular day. And that was tearing the church apart. So Paul writes to them, and he gives them this. 
the five black and white rules for living in shades of gray. That's where we were last week. We're going to go over them really quickly this morning. It's important to remember these. Five black and white rules from Romans chapter 14 for living in shades of gray. First one is this. You honor people even if you disagree with them. Okay? Here's the place where we break down most, when we're arguing back and forth. You honor people even if you disagree. Don't try to fix people by, by imposing your point of view. You are so wrong. Let me set you straight. I will be here to tell you what God really believes about something. You know what? The Word tells us what God believes about something. Not me. The Word. If what I say isn't in the Word, throw it out. The Word tells us. Trust God to do His work. If you think somebody is wrong... Trust the Holy Spirit to work in his life or her life. God is, he's, he's, he knows what he's doing. The Holy Spirit has been changing lives a lot longer than you have. He's better at it. Let him do it. Don't flaunt your opinions. Build each other up. And finally was this. Be certain of all you do or don't do it. The Christian life is a positive life. If I'm not sure I can do something, then I shouldn't do it until I'm sure I can. The Christian life is a positive life. Okay, so far so good? That was last week. Be very important before we're done. Today we're going to take a look at the gray area of politics. And I do this because I grow weary in my soul of... Um, even in magazines like Christianity Today, which I read every day because they update articles, and I look at the comment section and people writing, you can't be a Christian and vote for fill-in-the-blank. How could any Christian vote for a Democrat? That's terrible. Everything they believe. Other people, oh, you can't vote for a Republican. And I think, oh, man. That's what brought me back to the Word, to say, Father... We need some help here. Over the next six weeks, you're going to be inundated here. And in the next six weeks or so, we're going to choose the next president. And we're going to have prayer for that at the very end of the service. So today, we are going to look at um, politics. And last week, the last, very last sense of the sermon, I told you that this church will not endorse a candidate or political party nor tell you how to vote. And today I'm going to tell you why. And so naturally, we're going to start with the temptations of Jesus. Because that's the starting point. And you say, what has the temptations of Jesus got to do with politics? Oh, you'll see. Okay. You see, when something is, is a gray area, when there isn't anything in Scripture that says this is what you do, then you look to the rest of Scripture about how you approach this area. I hope that when you read the Word, I hope you apply the Word to your life. Not the black and whites. Those are the easy ones, okay? I'm assuming that all of us know that you don't commit adultery. I don't think we have to go into that one, do we? Don't, don't tell me if we do. I don't want to know. <laughs> but the other areas, those gray areas, we decide things based on what the rest of the Word of God tells us. Let's take a look at the temptations of Jesus and see how they apply. Ready? Here we go. 
The first temptation, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Okay? He, he was just baptized, going to start his ministry. The Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted. God leads his son into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tells him not to eat anything. He fasts for 40 days in the desert. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And you would go, well, duh. Actually, this is very important. Because if you've had a long fast, obviously, look at me, I never have. Um, they tell me that after you fast for six or seven days, your, your appetite actually goes away. When it comes back, it's your body saying, you get food or we're dead. You get food right now or we die. So when it says after 40 days he was hungry, what it means is Jesus was on the point of starvation. At his weakest the enemy comes and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's that temptation all about? What's the message? What's the, what's the lesson from that temptation? What would, how would you put it? You get, you get to answer, by the way. Carson, what do you think that, that temptation is all about? Economics. Okay, be interesting. Sure. Okay. What else? What would this be when, when, you're, when you're, God has sent you off and hasn't given you food and then you have the ability, you do. I mean, let's face it, Jesus could do it. Just, you're about to die. Turn these loaves into bread. Why not do it? How about this? Take a look at this. Don't rely on your own power and wisdom. When God gives you a task, don't rely on your own power and wisdom. God sent him out there. God led him there. Jesus knew there was a task that he had to do. Jesus could at this point said, you know, I'm going to help my father out here. I think it would be time for me to eat. Jesus knew that when the father wanted him to eat, guess what would happen? He'd eat, there'd be food. And there is, by the way, at the very end. The second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, by the way, notice that every single time he put doubt in his mind, every single time, if, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus replied, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, let me tell you what's going on here. Jesus there's a scripture that says that Jesus would be protected, the Messiah would be protected because he's got a job to do. God is not going to let him be harmed because he has a job to do. So Satan says, look, wouldn't it be something if you stood on the highest point of the temple, way up there, like standing on the spire of this church, way at the top, and you jump down, and people would go, and when you land, you're not hurt. You're not even injured. People would go, whoa, Superman has come. Let us listen to his words. What a great way to get everybody's attention, right? Because you can't get hurt. Jesus said, uh, no, you don't put God to the test. In other words, this, guys. Here's the second temptation. Don't try to force his hand. God has a task for you to do. Don't force his hand. When... Um, I first went to the church at Deer Flat on, on staff positions in the mid-80s. The early 80s, there had been this whole ministry that had kind of swept the church, not just there but around. It was called a name it and claim it a mindset that said, you know, I'm a child of the king. I should have like a prince. All I've got to do is, is, is name something and claim it, and God will give it to me. 
I'm going to, for, I'm going to put his arm behind his back because I'm his child. And if, if I feel that I want something, I'll name it and I'll claim it and God will give it to me. You know how many people went bankrupt in the church over stuff like that? When I got to the church at Deer Flat, there were two farmers that had lost everything. Farms that had been in their family for generations because they got into it and they started buying new tractors and they bought land and because they were going to, God would provide. And what God provided was a good bankrupt lawyer because they lost it all. You don't force God's hand. And the last temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him. Okay, now, do you understand what's happened here? Jesus has been sent to win the world. Satan just said, look, I'll give you the world. No cross. No blood, no pain. You worship me, and you got it. What's this temptation about? Well, here it is. Don't use human methods to achieve God's goals. We don't use human methods to achieve God's goals. And here we get to the heart of the issue. When God gives us a task to do, Sometimes, often, instead of doing it his way and waiting in his time, because his way is often the hard way, it is, it's a hard way. The cross for Jesus Christ was the hard way. So hard, in fact, that at the very end of his ministry, Jesus said to his father, is there another way to do this? Because I really don't want to go through this. And the father said, there isn't, do it. Sometimes God's way is hard. And we don't like it. So we try to take a different method. God gave a promise to Abraham. Remember that promise? He said, you are going to have descendants so numerous, it would be like trying to count the stars in the sky or, or the, the grains of sand on the sky. That's, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham said, I don't have any descendants. My wife and I don't have kids, and we're very old. God said, it's okay. Trust me. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And what happened? No kids. So Abraham decided what? Well, I'll do it my way. I, I will just, you know, it won't be through my wife, but my, my wife has a handmaiden, and it's okay. I'll just have a child, and that's where all my descendants will come for. What was the name of that child that he gave? That gave Ishmael. Ishmael. That's not what God had in mind. God's plan was to wait even longer so they were even older. And eventually what happened? Both he and his wife, they had a son named Isaac, and from Isaac come all the Jews. But because Abraham used his own methods, his own wisdom, his own time, what happened? Ishmael was born. Who is the descendants of Ishmael today? All the Arabs. The Arabs and the Jews all trace their lineage back to a single man named Abraham. Abraham decided to take matters into his own hand and to do it his way. Look at the damage done to the world today. The nation of Israel. 
They were called together and they were called to have a government where God would be their king. It's called a theocracy. And the people didn't want that. The people wanted their own king. And God in his mercy said, okay, you want it, you got it. And because they got a king, their taxes went up. And their nation was divided and split. Because they wanted things their way. We cannot achieve God's task and goal with human methods. Let me show you why. This is so clear in Scripture. Here's one of those black and white things. Ready? Here you go. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God does not use human methods to achieve his goal. Got it so far? Now, what's that got to do? Stick with me here, okay? I'm trying to do this in a way that will make sense and won't get me fired at the same time. So (laughs) here we go. God has given us a task, hasn't he? What's our task? Here it is. Our job is to help Jesus build the kingdom. Remember, that's what the church is called to do. Our whole thing is about building the kingdom. We understand and we know that only one thing is going to survive this world, and that's the kingdom of God. Our nation will not survive it. There's no such thing as as America, the United States of America up in heaven. This world will be destroyed. Our nation will be destroyed. Our government will be destroyed. Sorry, that's the way it is, guys. Only one thing is going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever. It's God's kingdom. And we are here to build that kingdom. That's our main job. That's what we're called to do. Build the kingdom starting right now. That's what we do. This is what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. If you are a Christ follower, you have a single most important mission. I got other missions as well, but your most important mission, the thing that we're most focused on, is building the kingdom of God. That's what we do. That's what each of us are called to do. Not just the paid preachers. All of us have a main mission in life to build that which will never pass away, ever. Right now, we are inviting people to be part of the kingdom. Right now, people are coming to the kingdom. Those people will be part of the kingdom, and they'll be part of that kingdom that will never, ever, ever end. My daughter-in-law just recently became a naturalized citizen of the United States of America. I'm so proud of her. She was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Wonderful girl, Adriana. And she worked very hard to become a citizen of this country. Isn't that wonderful? But you know what? In the long run, so what? Because the most important thing is a long time ago, she became a citizen of heaven. And that will never pass away. She will not take her American passport with her to heaven. But she'll take her faith in Jesus Christ. We are kingdom builders, people. You understand that? Can you say it with me? We are kingdom builders. Say that. We are kingdom builders. One more time. We are kingdom builders. That's what we do. Now, it gets hard. Here we go. We can't build the kingdom through government. Can't be done. It's not possible. No, it's possible can't be done. It can't be done. It can't be done. 
We cannot build the kingdom through our government. One more time. We cannot build the kingdom through our government. Cannot be done. Sometimes I think we read the Great Commission like this. Therefore, go and gain political power using it to pass laws that will force people to obey me, and I will give you my approval and blessing to the very end of the age. If we could build a kingdom through political power, Jesus would have told us to do it a long time ago. It can't be done. You see, here's the inconvenient truth. We are not called to force people to obey God. Do you understand that? I told you you're here to, to build a kingdom. We are called to build a kingdom. We are not called to force people to obey God. Now, do you understand the difference here? I hope you do. And if not, by the time we're all done here, you will. Forcing people to obey God is not building the kingdom. They're two completely separate things. It's not our call to make people obey God. We are not God's policemen. Did you know that? Jesus prayed this. In his prayer, we call the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Now, that's really, let's, let's unpack that for a second, okay? Your kingdom come, your will... Do you... You see the way he put it? I think it's really important that he put it this way. First your kingdom comes, then what happens? Don't flip it around. Don't come and say, you know, if we can get everybody to obey God, that's when the kingdom will show up. No. People obey God because they're part of the kingdom. First you become part of the kingdom. Then you obey God. If you're not part of the kingdom... You can't obey God. It can't be done. We'll look at that in just a moment. God's kingdom doesn't come when we obey Him. We obey Him when we're part of the kingdom. Our job is to bring people into the kingdom, and as we bring people into the kingdom, they begin to obey God. The government can't do that. And you say, well, what about all those people out there? You know, shouldn't we, you know, what about all those, shouldn't we force them? Look at all the bad things they're doing out there in the world. Wow, I'm going to show you a little passage here from Paul that may bother some of you, but then again, like I said, I would love to discuss any of this with any of you. Just remember, you have to come from the Word. I'm coming to you from the Word of God here. I need you to come back to me from the Word of God. What about all those people that are out there disobeying God? Do we have to stop them? Is it our job to stop them? Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, we talked about this a little bit last week. First Corinthians chapter 5. He, um, <laughs> these people in the church, in the church at Corinth, were kind of overlooking a black and white sin. At that time, it was some guy who was living with his stepmother, and the church said, well, it's okay, no big deal. And Paul writes, what are you doing? Don't hang around with people like that. And then he said, you know, in my first letter, remember I told you last week that 1 Corinthians isn't 1 Corinthians, it's at least 2 Corinthians. Could be more than that, who knows? The first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, we don't have. In that letter, he said, look, don't hang around with immoral people. And people thought, oh, good, so what I do is I won't hang around with people in the world, I'll just hang around with the church. And he has to write and say, no, I didn't mean that. 
I mean, immoral people in the church, kick them out. But you have to hang around with immoral people out there, otherwise you wouldn't talk to anybody. Then he says this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. It's not my job to force people out there to obey him. First of all, they can't. You can only obey him if you're part of the kingdom. You can only obey him if you're filled with his spirit. If you're filled with his spirit, then you're part of the kingdom, then you can obey him. If you're not filled with his spirit and you're not part of the kingdom, you can't obey him. You can't. It's not my job to force them. Now, that doesn't mean we, we have nothing to say. Well, of course we have something to say to them. And politics is part of that. We'll touch it before we're all done. We do have a responsibility, but Scripture also makes something clear. Our responsibility is to warn people, not to force people. In the Old Testament, God called a man named Ezekiel to be a prophet. Ezekiel was, read the book of Ezekiel sometime, it's weird, it's a weird book. It's like reading the book of the Revelation, and only it's an Old Testament book. Ezekiel was a strange little prophet, and God made this guy do weird stuff, really weird stuff. Maybe sometime we'll sit down and talk about it a whole sermon series, all the weird stuff Ezekiel had to do, okay? It's strange. But God was making a point through the whole thing. In chapter 3, when he starts this, his whole ministry, after catching him up in a whirlwind and him sitting completely dumbfounded for seven days, just the shock of what God had done for him. Imagine God doing something in your life and you were so shocked you sit silent for seven days. That was Ezekiel. He was like, oh my word, what just happened to me? God gives him his call. He says, son of man, this is what I want you to do. When I say to the wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Oh, my word. If I say to somebody, they're wicked, I'll punish them, but if you don't warn them, I'm going to talk to you about it. But then he says this, but if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will still die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Was it Ezekiel's job to force them to obey? What was his job? Bingo. Where did we ever get in our minds that it's the church's job to force people to obey God? You can't do it. You cannot obey God if you're not part of his kingdom. If you're not part of his kingdom, you're not filled with his spirit. If you're not filled with his spirit, you can't obey God. It is not our job to force people to obey. It is our job to warn them and to say, listen, where you're headed isn't good. And there will be a judgment day. You see, God's way of building his kingdom is hard. It's hard. It's so hard. It really is hard. It's one person at a time. One life at a time. One message at a time. It's bringing people into his kingdom and then working with them, and it's messy. It is so messy. Baby Christians are just so messy. As they learn what's right and what's wrong and how to hear and how not to hear. I think back to the time when I was an immature baby Christian. Oh, my word. How could I have been so dumb? Well, you know, because I was a baby Christian. This is hard work. This isn't done through rules. This isn't done through control. This is done through speaking truth into people's lives and walking alongside them 
and helping them clean themselves up when the mess has come and being people of forgiveness and grace and mercy and hope and encouragement. And it's not easy. Jesus worked for years in ministry and wound up with 11. And some of them still doubted. Wow. We want to take the easier way. We want, to, we want to take a government and pass a bunch of laws and say, now, government will pass all of God's laws and everybody will obey Him. Well, of course, we don't really mean that because we don't mean all the laws, do we? I mean, we don't really want a law against you know, gossip because that would be bad. If, if everybody went to jail because they gossiped, that would destroy our whole industry. And deception, well, we don't want a law against that because Madison Avenue would die on the vine. We do want laws against, you know, whatever it is, filling whatever is really important to you, but we don't want all those laws out there. You see, it's temptation number three, isn't it? We will achieve God's goals our way through government, politics, now, there's a place for government and politics. We'll get there. Trust me. We still have a few minutes. Don't worry. God's method of building his kingdom is messy. It's one person at a time. It's saying, hey, have you met my Savior? Let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. And then working with those people as they just make a mess of their lives all over again and learn how to do it right. That's the church. That's our job. See, even if government could pass all the laws, it still wouldn't work. You know why? Because obeying his rules doesn't build a kingdom. Simply because people obey a bunch of rules doesn't mean they've obeyed the kingdom. Again, God makes this incredibly clear to us. It, obeying his rules isn't bringing in his kingdom. It's not what his kingdom's about. Paul writes again to this church of Rome and says, Look, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. In other words, this righteous kingdom that God is building through us right now on this planet that will last forever and ever and ever that we get to be part of isn't about obeying the rules. And you can obey the rules and it still wouldn't put you in the kingdom. What puts you in the kingdom? Obeying the rules? No. What puts you in the kingdom? Faith in Jesus Christ and that and that alone. There is only one way into this kingdom. And God has made it clear. Faith in His Son brings you into the kingdom. Then you learn how to obey Him. You cannot get into the kingdom by obeying rules. The basis of our country... Oh, well, let's move on here. Obeying rules doesn't put you in the kingdom. And really, that's all the government can do. The government can't fill you with the Holy Spirit. It can't even force you to be filled with the Spirit. And if you're not filled with the Spirit... You are not part of the kingdom. And if you're not part of the kingdom, you cannot obey him. It's that simple. How about this then? The government won't build the kingdom. We can't build the kingdom through politics. Now, I am a politics junkie. I read about seven websites a day, several times a day, just the political section, because I'm a, I'm a politics junkie. I love politics. I find it disgusting. I don't know why I'm drawn to it, but there it is. It's like, a, it's like you know, slowing down by an accident. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Um, see, our basis of our country is the Constitution. 
but their country runs and our leaders are elected through politics. And politics is an ugly business. And I want to tell you this right here. Here's why you can't build a kingdom through politics. God does not partner with unrighteousness. Do you understand that? God does not partner with unrighteousness. He does not use unrighteous things to accomplish His will. He doesn't need to. He is holy and pure. And He doesn't need to come alongside ugly sin to get His will done. So what Scripture says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We take this and we kind of apply it to marriage. But actually, he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about getting involved and being connected with people who don't agree. With people who aren't filled with the Spirit. We don't partner with unrighteousness. God doesn't partner with unrighteousness. When we partner with unrighteousness to build the kingdom, we've fallen into temptation number three, doing things our way. We have to be careful. Some of us get so wrapped up in our political parties, and there's a place for them, and we'll touch, we're almost done here, that we wind up partnering with them in an unholy and unhealthy way. Let me just ask you this. Can you identify and see the lies of the opposing party? Let's say you are a Republican. Can you identify and see the lies that the Democratic Party is right now putting out? And does it make you mad? Okay. Can you identify and see the lies that the Republican Party is putting out right now and does it make you just as mad? If you can't. If you can't, your soul is in danger. As your pastor, I'm telling you, your soul is in danger. Lies are lies. Republican lies are Democratic lies. And they all lie. That's politics, isn't it? And we make that excuse, well, it's just politics. Suddenly I realized this last year that... um, some of the ways our candidates behave or the the spokesman for the candidates. If our fifth grade boy or girl did the same thing, we'd discipline them. We'd give them a timeout. We'd take away their we. (laughs) You're being deceptive. Don't be deceptive. As an adult politician, we give them our vote. Why did morality change simply because they're an adult politician? Why is it now acceptable? It should make us just as upset. And you say, well, but my party is the more righteous party. The other party, well, we're both bad, but mine is the more. There's no such thing as more righteous. It does not exist. There's no such a degree. There's no such thing as more holy. There's either righteous or not, holy or not. Rick Warren, who's the pastor of the uh, Saddleback Church, four years ago invited both candidates to have this forum. There was, at the time, it was Barack Obama and it was uh, John McCain, and he brought them out and had a little forum, you know, talked to each one of them. He did the same thing with both candidates this year, and he just canceled it. Do you know why? 
He was sick to death of the lies and the deception on both sides, and he wouldn't have it in his church. That was a good decision. Yeah. You see, unfortunately, politics has degenerated because it's human, because there's so much money and power at stake, and because it is not godly. The ugliness of humanity has come out, and both sides lie and deceive. And it doesn't matter if one side lies or deceives more. <laughs> it's lies and deception. You see, how about this? God doesn't use politics because God doesn't compromise. That's the very name of politics is it's the art of compromise. And God doesn't compromise. He doesn't say, well, here's righteousness, but that's all right. I'll, I'll fudge a little bit on this righteous for over here. He doesn't do that. Scripture says this. This is the message we've heard from him declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is holy and righteous that's it. Now, before you put those sermon notes away, you're going to have to look at them one more time. Now, I'm not saying that we as Christians should not be involved in politics or government. Matter of fact, there are some people that they really are involved in politics and government. God bless you. If, if you are there, wow. As long as what you're trying to do is make the world a better place. If you're trying to build God's kingdom through the government and politics, you're wrong. You're just flat wrong. It can't be done. That's why the church will not take a stand. Our job is to build the kingdom of God. That's what we're about. And that's where we'll put our focus. Some people, however, you understand that it is through politics and the government that we can make the world a better place. We vote the way we do when we get involved in politics because we're trying to make our society and our government and our country as good as it can possibly be until it's destroyed by God and we all go live in the kingdom over there. There's nothing wrong with that. We have people in this church who are very involved in politics. God bless you. You need to know that I pray for you all the time. I can't do it. I get involved and it just makes me mad. And, and I don't wind up doing good. I wind up just getting kicked out. And it just, it doesn't do any good. Jesus probably could have done it. Jesus probably could have been involved in some of the politics and, and maneuvered it in such a way to, to move people towards the good. I can't. And I know that about me. So I, I, I try to make the world a better place in a different way. I, I donate about 240 hours a year, between 200 and 240 hours a year to something called a citizen review board. I had to go through training. I was appointed by the Supreme Court of, of Oregon. Don't be impressed. There are about 30 or 40 of us that were. And we meet once a month to sit down with DHS and to go over cases of children who are in substitute care to make sure that DHS is doing their job. And if they're not, I alert the courts and say, look, we've got a problem here. Now, I love that. That fits me really well. And if you try to figure 200 to 240 hours a week, figure out how much time then I give every year just to try to make the world a better place. Some of you are going to do it through politics, and that's okay if you can do that. Wonderful. But don't build a kingdom through politics. Don't build a kingdom through government. It can't be done. Do so because that's how you think the world is going to be improved. Somehow you've got to build a better society. 
Somehow you got to be involved. True, that society will be better just until it's completely destroyed by God, and it will be. Because the only thing that's going to last forever is the kingdom. First and foremost, we want to build a kingdom and then make the world a better place. If you want to do that through politics and government, God bless you. So then, how do we deal with differing political opinions in the church? Well, you know exactly how to deal with them. I already told you how to deal with them. Pull out those sermon notes. Page one. This is how you do it from Romans 14. You honor people even if you disagree with them. Don't try to fix people by imposing your point of view. Trust God to do his work. Don't flaunt your opinions, build each other up, and be certain of all you do or don't do it. Can I vote for this person? Do I feel clear about it? If not, don't vote. Don't vote for somebody if you think God would not approve. Don't do it. I have to be certain. And you say, can you vote? Well, how about this? Then that means you've got a little work to do between now and the day you vote, don't you? Did you think democracy was easy? It's hard. So you ready? Here we go. We're going to end it right here. Some of you are going to vote for the Republican, and I'll tell you why. It's because you love this great country, and you believe that given our current choices, the leadership of Mitt Romney and the Republican Party and the policies of the Republican Party are the best way to move this country into the direction that it needs to go. And that's why you'll do it. Some of you are going to vote for Barack Obama, and I'm going to tell you why. Because you love this great country, and you believe that the leadership of Barack Obama and the policies of the Democratic Party are the best ones to move this country forward in the direction that it needs to go. And that's it. Are we clear? Crystal clear? (laughs) That should have been the reply, so let's try it one more time if you've seen the movie. Are we clear? Crystal clear? Do I still have a job? Let's focus on what we're called to do. Let's build a kingdom, that which will never, ever, ever go away. And you get to be part of that. Then we'll also use our time to build the society that we think is best going to help the needs of this country. And will our faith factor in? Of course it will. Of course my faith will factor in. But through my faith, I will look at one party and say, I think their policies will do a better job. And through someone else's faith, you'll look at a party and go, you know, I think their policies might do a better job. Our faith will be the same, but our conclusions of the policies will be different. And we will honor one another and pray for one another. And we'll keep our minds focused and our efforts focused on the very main thing, which is building the kingdom of God which isn't done through government or politics. It's the messy business of coming alongside brand new Christians and helping them live. Father, thank you. 
Thank you for a great country. Thank you for the, the ability to vote. Thank you for that awesome choice that we have, the freedom that we have, the privilege of actually having a say in our government. Thank you, Lord. Father, forgive us for the times we've actually tried to use that to build your kingdom because you don't do that. It's the easy way out for us. You have given us the task of building the kingdom. Father, we need to be at that task. So, Father, empower us, help us, show us. And then, Father, in the differing opinions, let us honor one another and trust you. Thank you for this country. Thank you for this election. We're going to spend a few moments now, Father, just looking to you and praying for our next leader, whoever that will be. Thank you, Lord. Amen.